Augsburg Confession as read by Pastor Philip Hoppe. Article 27 of Monastic Vows What is taught on our part concerning monastic vows will be better understood if it be remembered what has been the state of the monasteries, and how many things were daily done in those very monasteries, contrary to the canons. In Augustine's time, they were free associations. Afterward, when discipline was corrupted, vows were everywhere added for the purpose of restoring discipline, as in a carefully planned prison. Gradually, many other observances were added besides vows, and these fetters were laid upon many before the lawful age, contrary to the canons. Many also entered into this kind of life through ignorance, being unable to judge their own strength, though they were of sufficient age. Being thus ensnared, they were compelled to remain, even though some could have been freed by the kind provision of the canons. And this was more the case in convents of women than of monks, although more consideration should have been shown to the weaker sex. This rigor displeased many good men before this time, who saw that young men and maidens were thrown into convents for a living. They saw what unfortunate results came out of this procedure, and what scandals were created, what snares were cast upon consciences. They were grieved that the authority of the canons, in so momentous a matter, was utterly set aside and despised. To these evils was added such a persuasion concerning vows as, it is well known, in former times displeased even those monks who were more considerate. They taught that vows were equal to baptism. They taught that by this kind of life they merited forgiveness of sins and justification before God. Yea, they added that the monastic life not only merited righteousness before God, but even greater things, because it kept not only the precepts, but also the so-called evangelical councils. Thus they made people believe that the profession of monasticism was far better than baptism, and that the monastic life was more meritorious than that of magistrates, than the life of pastors and such like, who serve their calling in accordance with God's commands, without any man-made services. None of these things can be denied, for they appear in their own books, Moreover, a person who has been thus ensnared and has entered a monastery learns little of Christ. What then came to pass in the monasteries? Aforetime they were schools of theology and other branches profitable to the church, and thence pastors and bishops were obtained. Now it is another thing. It is needless to rehearse what is known to all. Aforetime they came together to learn. Now they feign that it is a kind of life instituted to merit grace and righteousness. Yea, they preach that it is a state of perfection, and they put it far above all other kinds of life ordained by God. These things we have rehearsed without odious exaggeration, to the end that the doctrine of our teachers on this point might be better understood. First, concerning such as contract matrimony, they teach on our part that it is lawful for all men who are not fitted for single life to contract matrimony, because vows cannot annul the ordinance and commandment of God. But the commandment of God is, 1 Corinthians 7.2, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Nor is it the commandment only, but also the creation and ordinance of God, which forces those to marry who are not accepted by a singular work of God, according to the text Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone, therefore they do not sin who obey this commandment and ordinance of God. What objection can be raised to this? 
Let men extol the obligation of a vow as much as they list, yet shall they not bring to pass that the vow annuls the commandment of God. The canons teach that the right of the superior is accepted in every vow, that vows are not binding against the decision of the Pope, much less, therefore, are these vows of force which are against the commandments of God. Now, if the obligation of vows could not be changed for any cause whatsoever, the Roman pontiffs could never have given dispensation, for it is not lawful for a man to annul an obligation which is simply divine. But the Roman pontiffs have prudently judged that leniency is to be observed in this obligation, and therefore we have read that many times they have dispensed from vows. The case of the king of Aragon, who was called back from the monastery, is well known, and there are other examples in our own times. Now, if dispensations have been granted for the sake of securing temporal interest, it is much more proper that they be granted on account of the distress of souls. In the second place, why do our adversaries exaggerate the obligation or effect of a vow when, at the same time, they have not a word to say of the nature of the vow itself, that it is thought to be in a thing possible, that it ought to be free, and chosen spontaneously and deliberately? but it is not unknown to what extent perpetual chastity is in the power of man, and how few there are who have taken the vow spontaneously and deliberately. Young maidens and men, before they are able to judge, are persuaded, and sometimes even compelled, to take the vow. Wherefore it is not fair to insist so rigorously on the obligation, since it is granted by all that it is against the nature of a vow to take it without spontaneous and deliberate action. Most canonical laws rescind vows made before the age of fifteen, for before that age there does not seem to be sufficient judgment in a person to decide concerning a perpetual life. Another canon, granting more to the weakness of man, adds a few years, for it forbids a vow to be made before the age of eighteen. But which of these two canons shall we follow? The most part have an excuse for living the monasteries, because most of them have taken vows before they reached these ages. Finally, even though the violation of a vow might be censured, yet it seems not forthwith to follow that the marriage of such persons must be dissolved. For Augustine denies that they ought to be dissolved, and his authority is not lightly to be esteemed, although other men afterwards thought otherwise. But although it appears that God's command concerning marriage delivers very many from their vows, yet our teachers introduce also another argument concerning vows to show that they are void. For every service of God, ordained and chosen of men without the commandment of God, to merit justification and grace is wicked. As Christ says, Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me with the commandments of men. And Paul teaches everywhere that righteousness is not to be sought from our own observances and acts of worship, devised by men, but that it comes by faith to those who believe, that they are received by God into grace for Christ's sake. But it is evident that monks have taught that the services of man's making satisfy for sins and merit grace and justification. What else is this than to detract from the glory of Christ and to obscure and deny the righteousness of faith? It follows, therefore, that the vows thus commonly taken have been wicked services and consequently are void. For a wicked vow taken against the commandment of God is not valid. For as the canon says, no vow ought to bind men to wickedness. Paul says, Galatians 5.4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. 
To those, therefore, who want to be justified by their vows, Christ is made of no effect, and they fall from grace. For also these who ascribe justification to vows ascribe to their own works that which properly belongs to the glory of Christ. Nor can it be denied, indeed, that the monks have taught that, by their vows and observances, they were justified, and merited forgiveness of sins. Yea, they invented still greater absurdities, saying that they could give others a share in their works. If any one should be inclined to enlarge on these things with evil intent, how many things could be brought together whereof even the monks are now ashamed? Over and above all of this, they persuaded men that services of man's making were a state of Christian perfection. And is this not assigning justification to works? It is no light offense in the church to set forth to the people a service devised by men without the commandment of God, and to teach that such service justifies men. For the righteousness of faith, which chiefly ought to be taught in the church, is obscured when these wonderful angelic forms of worship with their show of poverty, humility, and celibacy, are cast before the eyes of men. Furthermore, the precepts of God and the true service of God are obscured when men hear that only monks are in a state of perfection. For Christian perfection is to fear God from the heart, and yet to conceive great faith, and to trust that for Christ's sake we have a God who has been reconciled to ask of God and assuredly expect his aid in all things that according to our calling are to be done, and meanwhile to be diligent in outward good works and to serve our calling. In these things consists the true perfection and the true service of God. It does not consist in celibacy or in begging or in vile apparel. But the people conceive many pernicious opinions from the false commendations of the monastic life. They hear celibacy praised above measure, Therefore they lead their married life with offense to their consciences. They hear that only beggars are perfect. Therefore they keep their possessions and do business with offense to their consciences. They hear that it is an evangelical counsel not to seek revenge. Therefore some in private life are afraid to take revenge. For they hear that it is but a counsel and not a commandment. Others judge that the Christian cannot properly hold a civil office or be a magistrate. These are on-record examples of men who, forsaking marriage and the administration of the commonwealth, have hid themselves in monasteries. This they called fleeing from the world and seeking a kind of life which would be more pleasing to God. Neither did they see that God ought to be served in those commandments which he himself has given, and not in commandments devised by men. A good and perfect kind of life is that which has for it the commandment of God, it is necessary to admonish men of these things. And before these times, Garrison rebukes this error of the monks concerning perfection, and testifies that in his day it was a new saying that the monastic life is a state of perfection. So many wicked opinions are inherent in the vows, namely that they justify, that they constitute Christian perfection, that they keep the counsels and commandments, that they have works of supererogation, all these things, since they are false and empty, make vows null and void.